Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Squadron, the podcast devoted to creating and optimizing a healthy and fulfilling life for first responders all over the world. I'm your host, Garrett Tesla. I'm a sergeant for a sheriff's department in Southern California. And on the show, I talk to a variety of experts in all a variety of fields looking for those force multipliers that I can apply to my own life. I want to make myself and, ergo you, happier and healthier so that we can tackle these challenging careers with energy and focus and even enthusiasm. The entire purpose of this podcast is to make myself better and then to share what I'm learning with you. Now, before we get to the interview, I want to remind you that you can get more information on this episode, including show notes and links to our guests' information by going to thesquadroom.net. And you can also, of course, subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter, at The Squadroom. And we have a Facebook group now. So join us. It's a growing group of people who are exchanging ideas, exchanging um, advice, exchanging tips and tricks, uh, having some good discussions. So when you're on Facebook, search the Squadroom podcast group. We should pop right up. You can ask to join. It is a closed group. It's closed to people who listen to the show or are involved in uh, a first responder career in some way or looking to get into a first responder career. Uh, it's not open to everybody. So that's, there's some uh, ability to, to just make sure that we're having good conversations. And I, of course, am a, the administrator of it, so uh, we don't get spammy, kind of stuff like that. So join us on Facebook. Also, many of you have asked how you can support the show. Well, here it is. If you go to patreon.com forward slash the squadroom, you can make a donation to help us cover expenses and expand the reach of the show. You can select a donation amount and any amount you want and how long you want to contribute, and it's that easy. Uh, it's patreon.com forward slash the squadroom. Patreon spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And a special thanks this week to uh, a donor by the handle of Redman's. Oh, I'm saying that right. Of course, uh, it's a kind of an anonymous. So, uh, Redman's, if you're out there, thanks, man. Uh, thanks for this, or or woman, because you're anonymous. Thanks for the support of the show. Um, that one's uh, that was really cool. That's the very first uh, person to donate. All right. So, our guest today uh, is a man who uh, I've been excited to talk to for quite some time. I read his book back when it came out, and it blew my mind that someone has the stones to do what he did which was infiltrate the Hells Angels. And I don't mean just infiltrate, but I mean get in there and uh, and see it and then take and put some of these people uh, in front of a court for some justice. His book, of co- that book is No Angel, My Harrowing Journey to the Inner Circle of the Hells Angels. Today's guest is Jay Dobbins, former ATF agent, undercover agent uh, who's been in... Uh, Dozens and dozens of undercover operations who was shot in the line of duty, uh, I think, four days into his field training with the ATF. And he was shot again 18 months later. Uh, Someone who has literally looked death in the face and given it the middle finger and carried on. Uh, Jay has a new book called Catching Hell. And that book is almost even crazier than his first book. You know, the first book I read thinking, wow, I... I can't imagine how anyone could survive in an environment like the Hells Angels. And then you read the new book, and it's about the aftermath of the investigation that made him famous, uh, the firebombing of his own house, the death threats to his kids and, and wife, and how the ATF, in his opinion, and that, now that of a court, handled the response to it, which was poor, to say the least. Uh, Jay's got a story about being turned on by his own agency, the same people that ran the Fast and Furious operation were his supervisors, and uh, not shockingly, they didn't do a great job. Uh, Jay 
what strikes me about Jay though is he's not bitter about it. He's not. I, I would say he's. I mean, angry is is certainly un, uh, acceptable and understandable, uh, but he hasn't let it cloud all the good things he was able to do in his career and his love of law enforcement and his love of the ATF as an organization with its goal. Jay was a Division One football player. Um, he's got a long, uh, interesting, interesting story. So excited to talk today uh, to to Jay today. We uh, we were able to connect up. We rescheduled this interview, and I'll warn you now: we rescheduled this interview once because of a bad internet connection, and the second time it wasn't much better. It is a challenge to understand uh, uh, some of what he says because of the internet connection. But uh, I played with the audio as best as I could, and I, th- I and I think you can hear. I think you can hear and understand what Jay's saying. Uh, in fact, I know you can, but my point is, is this might be an episode to listen to with earbuds in while you're doing something a little quieter. It might not be the kind of thing to listen to in the car with uh, ambient noise going on or at the gym. You might have a hard time hearing some of the valuable things that Jay has to say. I'm just going to say that up front so that you understand it. Uh, but it was well worth putting up with the bad audio to get out of it what Jay had to say and what he in the story he had to tell. So... Here we are with Jay Dobbins, the author of a new book, Catching Hell, and also his old book, No Angel, My Harrowing Journey to the Inner Circle of the Hell's Angels. Jay Dobbins, author of No Angel and a new book, Chasing Hell. Welcome to the squad room, Jay. Thank you. Thanks for having me, and welcome to your audience as well. So uh, I've been a fan of yours uh, since your book came out. Uh, uh, motorcycle gangs are of particular interest to me in my cop work, and uh, so I read that one. Uh, and I just, uh, in the introduction here, said that your book and then Under and Alone are the two best books in uh, about undercover work with the OMGs. And your book is a, uh, is a, well, it's, the subtitle is My Harrowing Journey to the Inner Circle of the Hells Angels. And that, that certainly uh, encapsulates that idea, the harrowing idea. So for people who don't know who you are, though, or haven't read your book yet, can you, can you start off with a story that was a good example of the undercover work you did? Well, in order to start off, I was an ATF agent for 27 years. Um, I got hired on a Monday in 1987. Uh, four days later, on a Thursday, I was taken hostage and shot. I had a bullet go in my back. It passed through my lung. It exited my chest. And, you know, after four days on the job, I was bleeding to death in a trailer park um, to where, you know, uh, blood was coming out of my chest like you're holding your thumb over a garden hose. And I had uh, attorneys coming to me trying to allow me to represent a case against the government. You know, I had attorneys coming in saying, you know what a million dollars looks like? Well, how about five million dollars? Let me go get that money for you because you were placed in a position uh, that you were not yet trained for, that you were not yet prepared for, and you'll never have to work another day in your life. And all I could do was tell them was to get out of my room. I wasn't interested in the money. Um, I never chased a dollar in my life. You know, my dad was a carpenter for 60 years. My mom uh, washed people's toilets that didn't want to wash them for themselves. Um, I just wanted to go to work. I wanted to stand in the path of predators and violence on behalf of people who couldn't or wouldn't do that for themselves. And so for the next 27 years, I came back to work and I took every undercover assignment that I could get my hands on. Um, I took a lot of assignments that no one else wanted. Um, I'm not necessarily sure that I was uh, good at it. I was 
willing. Um, I was always willing to try. And um, one of those cases uh, that I worked on that's described in the book No Angel is an infiltration of the Hells Angels, which was a two-year undercover operation that uh, you know we worked to try to get inside their wire and find out who the violent players were in that world and what they were up to and what they had done and were doing and were planning. And so that was probably the investigation I was a part of that got the most attention. Um, I'm not sure it's necessarily based on anything uh, different or dynamic that I did. I think the suspects are what made that story sexy. There was the Hells Angels were the targets and you know they're a part of Americana. And I think that's what captured people's fascination with that story. Yeah, certainly. I think, you know, movies glorify it so much, but as you know, from from the cop perspective, it's that it's so intriguing that idea of going so deeply uh, deeply undercover. Um, what was that? What is that conversation with your family like when you come home and you're like, "Honey, I have a new assignment. I'm uh, I'm going under with you know, and I'm going to join the Hell's Angels." What? How, what did you have to get your family on board with this, or were they just supportive? Well, you know, it's it's all they ever knew. Uh, I was working undercover when my kids were born. I was working undercover when I met my wife, when I married my wife, and so it was the life that they had come to know. Um, to be honest with you, uh, and it's not uh, flattering, it's, uh, at this point in my life, it's humiliating to some extent that um, I didn't do a very good job of uh, being a good husband or a father while I was in these undercover assignments because I was, I was all in. I was no nonsense. Uh, people who treat undercover work as a hobby or as just something to do, they end up dead. And I went all in. I did the best I could every day. Uh, I made mistakes. I didn't do everything right. I just did the best I could. Every day when the alarm clock went off, I was excited to put my feet on the ground and go to work. Uh, my family understood that, but in the process, again, um, you know, a shameful story to tell is that I, I abandoned my family in exchange for my work. And if I have regrets, that would be my biggest one, is that I, I wasn't uh, as good to the people who loved me the most as I should have been. So how do you now, 27 years later and retired, how have you tried to reconnect and, and, and kind of, I want to say fix, but reestablish maybe that, that relationship? Sure. I think it's an ongoing process trying to repair the battle damage that I created in my family. Um, I've said many times, I've made a million mistakes in my life and they've given me a million and one second chances. They're, all of them are much better than I deserve. And the fact that my family is still intact, uh, none of the credit for that goes to me. All of it goes to my wife. She's, uh, she's, she's a better person than I am and she's a stronger person than I am. And she, she didn't give up. Do you think, um, I'm just curious, how much do you think being in such a corrosive environment like the, the Hells Angels, I mean, I heard you on a, on an, uh, in an interview once describe it, and I'm, gonna, I'm gonna not going to get it exactly right, but a blood and vomit covered world. <laughs> so that has to begin to um, be a corrosive experience to you and your psyche and your psychological well-being. Do you think some of that 
played a role too, or was it just that you were so focused and dedicated to the job? Uh, I think it did play a role. I think uh, your audience out there, people in the law enforcement profession, first responders that are listening, they understand it. Um, you see the worst elements of society. You see the most despicable uh, people and situations uh, of our culture. And you see them day in and day out, over and over. And when you do it long enough, um, I, like I almost became brainwashed into thinking that that was all that was out there. Everybody was running the hustle. Everybody was looking to get over on someone. Everybody was looking to take advantage of somebody. And it wasn't until I left the job and stepped away from that and like opened my mind up a little bit to realize that the world really is a good place. The people in it and on it um, are spectacular, uh, good uh, overrides the evil, you know, love defeats the hate, uh, and that's how societies survive. That's how they self-perpetuate, is through the good. I think, I think any cop can relate to that if they, if they have a good self-awareness, that idea that you just end up wrapped up in everyone's, you know, either a criminal or a cop, and there's no in-between, you know, because that's who we deal with on a daily basis, and it's easy to get wrapped up in the job and not step step back and realize that, you know, the 99% of the people we never come in contact with who are going about their day, working hard, raising their kids. What, what was it about retiring? Was it just the fact that you had to get away from it to realize uh, the goodness out there? Uh, that was a big part of it. I had to step out of the environment that I continually, routinely place myself in. Um, I had to, um, become uh, reintegrated with like just regular people uh, who weren't playing on the criminal game, who weren't uh, necessarily always fighting for the justice, just regular everyday people who, like you said, uh, just want, a, want to live a safe and peaceful life and, you know, look to us to help provide that. To them. Um, you know, for you too, in your particular position, it's you had an in, you had a situation where you couldn't rely on some of the people at work to, to give you that balance, you know, the, the good versus bad, and you were surrounded by all these HAs and, and all the stuff that they do. But at the end of the day, at the end of your career, you ended up in a situation where you you couldn't trust your superiors to be supportive of you. Can you tell us? I mean, your new book. Chasing Hell, which is a great read, and I highly recommend people read it, basically explains the aftermath of that investigation, uh, of coming out of that HA investigation and then kind of the uh, result after you wrote the book and the resulting uh, things that happened. Can you, can you tell us uh, and tell people, the, I mean, the short or long version, however you want to go, uh, about what Chasing Hell is about, but also what are the things that ended up happening with you and the ATF. When the Hells Angels uh, undercover investigation was done and the case was presented in the courtroom, my true identity was revealed. And then threats started coming uh, from the Hells Angels and their associates and their supporters. Uh, death threats. Uh, I had, at one point, three international crime syndicates holding a contract on the Hells Angels. Uh, they had shopped it to the Aryan Brotherhood and had shopped it to the MS-13. Uh, everybody was looking. Everybody was 
you know, there were threats out there to uh, videotape the gang rape of my wife. There were threats to kidnap and torture my kids. Um, I was having confrontations on the street with people. And uh, the agency that I worked for, that I had given my entire adult life to, my professional life to, that I'd literally spilled gallons of blood for on behalf of, when that violence that I had investigated came home, when it came to my home, they didn't want anything to do with it. They told me, you know, the, the scope of the people that are hateful for you is too large for us to investigate. We just, we can't do anything about it. They basically told me I was on my own. Uh, when they did that, I blew the whistle on the bad conduct that was taking place. Uh, it had happened not only to me, but to people before me. And I wanted to put an end to it. I wanted to make sure that what was happening to me wasn't going to happen to someone in the future. Uh, when I did that, the agency doubled down on me and then opened up all my uh, backstopping information, all the uh, protective information about my finances, uh, the location of my home, all those things. They intentionally exposed that as a retaliatory payback to show me who was in charge. Three months after that took place, my home was burned to the ground by arsons. And after my home was destroyed, I almost took a, a breath of, of air on the situation because I thought, well, you haven't paid attention to this point for years of death threats, but now my, my home is smoldering. My family barely escaped the fire. You're going to, as an agency, you're going to have to react to this. It's, it's a real valid um, threatening attack on me. And the people that I was working for doubled down on me again. It still wasn't enough. They tried to frame me as the arsonist, as someone who was willing to murder their own family by fire. Um, it happened to be that those same people that were retaliating against me were simultaneously running ATF's Operation Fast and Furious, where they had orchestrated and allowed thousands of assault weapons to move directly into the hands of uh, narco-traffickers and cartels. So I, I was working and operating under a hierarchy of authority that was criminal and corrupt. And it ended up, you know, I ended up in a lawsuit. Um, after years of litigation, a trial, um, I was victorious in the trial. Everything that I said, everything that I claimed was proven in a courtroom, a federal courtroom. And so it's, it was, it was a very, uh, sad ending to my career. Um, I, I don't think anybody who ever took a badge and a gun, uh, for a living, uh, A, ever thought anybody would make a movie or a television show about it. I don't think anybody ever thought that they would write a book or have a book written about them. Um, I, I don't know that we actually leave legacies, um, but I knew this. I, I know that I did not want or expect or ever anticipate my legacy being someone who was going to have to fight their own government for justice, not only on my behalf, but on behalf of all of you. And not only that, fight a, not just fighting the government, fighting your, 
a law enforcement agency who you would assume and you would expect to be the champions of those rights. You, you mentioned yeah. you mentioned it there too that I mean you this wasn't just accusations you made against them. You sued in federal court and you won and like you said everything was brought out and proven there was an investigation done that pointed the blame at your supervisors who were also running fast and furious and uh this this report went up through the chain in the doj did anything happen out of it that was uh denied it was uh, contested they uh tried to morph the truth to uh, defend themselves um, ultimately, all the information, all the facts, all the evidence, all the testimony came out in the court. The judge uh, decided that everything I had claimed was honest and accurate and authentic and credible and verified. And the people who had committed the criminal acts and the bad acts and the corrupt acts, they all got off scot-free. Not one of them was disciplined. Not one of them ever had any type of adversity placed in their way, in their path, in their career, based on what they did. And in turn, DOJ appealed my victory, which is still pending uh, in an appellate court. They're still trying to contest what was proven in the courtroom because they do not want to admit, they do not want to give up how dirty the people that were working for them were in this situation. Do you think it's just to save face and they're embarrassed, or are they covering up something bigger? Um, I, I definitely think it's to save face. I definitely think they're embarrassed. But like I always looked at it this way. You know, people make mistakes. You, you, you take the overwhelming number of people in the law enforcement profession, and it's very easy to uh, point out a mistake, point out someone who acts inappropriately, or sometimes... Uh, criminally. Uh, it, it happens. It happens in any profession. It happens in every element of life. But when you do that, you have to fix the problem. You have to address it, be honest with it, and correct it. And DOJ refused to correct it. DOJ just remains in denial and is trying to press for something that I, I'm not really sure what they hope to gain or what they hope to accomplish other than refusing to admit that the people they defended were criminals. So how do you feel like this has colored your career at this point? I mean, are you, I mean, you ha have to understandably be pissed, <laughs> but I mean, that's probably putting it lightly, but do you still look at your time uh, in the ATF and in law enforcement as productive or as uh, a positive thing? Or how do you view your career now? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm still proud of uh, the good things I did, the accomplishments. Mm -hmm. I'm uh, not so proud of uh, the way I uh, handled myself all the time, especially with my family. Um, if I had to do it all over again, I would do it all over again. I would just do it better. I would be better at it, but you know, that's hindsight. I've always said for me, uh, wisdom is something that comes to me right after I needed it. <laughs> and, um, I am uh, frustrated. Um, but I like to be honest with you, I'm really not all that better. Um, I challenged the government. I took on the biggest law firm and the most powerful law enforcement entity on the planet in the Department of Justice. Mm -hmm. uh, it was me and my attorney. 
and we won. And we won because we had the truth. And the truth is the same today, and the truth will be the same a million years from today. That won't change. So, you know, I want to go back to the family thing, because you said, too, you do it all over again, you just do it better. And I don't think I've ever heard anyone kind of phrase it that way. It's always, well, I, if I had to do over, I'd either do it all again or I'd do things differently. What would you do, like, better? Because that's, you know, the show or my my goal with, you know, I got a family, too, and we want to have a successful family life and raise our kids right. What are the things you could do better? And do you think it's because, I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this, but... um is it the connections? Is it being able to put aside the work, you know, and, and not work the 24-7? Or when you're home, you're home. and you're, what, what is it that you would want to do better? I think there's a combination of things, uh, to be honest with you. Um, and in, in the book, uh, Catching Hell, which is the sequel to No Angel, um, I, I believe I was very honest about it, is that over the course of my career, over the course of my uh, undercover experience. Um, I did it for so long that my undercover persona became more than what I did. It became who I was. And there was times when I would bring that street thug character home. And I remember my wife telling me, you cannot walk back in this house after being gone for weeks and months at a time and treat us like like we are your suspects. We're your family. We love you. And my response in self-defense, in denial, was what I do for a living, I can't turn it off and on. I'm not a light switch. I'm not good at that. I have to be this person in order to stay alive when I'm on the street, when I'm outside this house. And her response was, well, then you need to install a dimmer switch and turn that down when you come here because this ain't flying. Um, you know, I, I, I did the bare minimum that I needed to to keep my family functioning. I would uh, come home from assignments, mow the grass, pat the kids on the head, have a cup of coffee with my wife, and I couldn't wait to get back in that criminal environment. I couldn't wait to get back and, and be with, you know, the dregs of our society, uh, all with trying to fulfill this self-imposed hero syndrome, that I was making a difference, that I was changing the world. Um, the whole time I was doing that, my own family was crashing behind me, and I was too uh, either selfish or uh, ignorant or a combination of a lot of bad things to realize. I think that's something that's easily relatable for any of us, you know. I mean, maybe not coming home and, and staying in that, method actor role of of the criminal but coming home and staying in the in that role of street cop even you know uh i've had my wife and i know other cops like we all chuckle about this sometimes when the wife points out that you know i've got my i got my kids seated on you know with their hands in their lap and their legs crossed in front of them like they're like they're sitting on the curb and i'm doing an fi uh and she's like you know hey you can't talk to your kids like they're suspects <laughs> you know um it's such a hard thing to to do, and, and in your position, it's not just an attitude. It's it's a it's a mindset you have to have because, like you said, to survive. It's it's like it's like a it's a method actor who just stays in the role even when the cameras stop running. You you have to almost just to stay in it. How did well, you? People, so go you know, ahead. I think I think people who treat uh, undercover work 
as a hobby, uh, as something cool, or uh, just like for the experience, they're dangerous and they end up dead and their partners end up dead mm-hmm. uh, because uh, it's, it's, it's not a joke. It's life and death. You know, you're pretending to be someone who you're not and you're surrounded by violent people who, as long as they're believing you, they'll probably protect you. They'll probably extend loyalty to you. But the second you make a mistake, the second you have a slip or cause suspicion amongst them, they're uniquely paranoid. And those same people who love you, you know, a split second later will put a straight razor to your throat or put a baseball bat on the back of your head. Um, that's a tough environment to live in. And then transition back to being a husband and a father and trying to be a good guy and riding bikes and going to movies or reading books with your kids. While, you know, hours before or in the next coming hours, you're going to be around violent people who will kill you. Do you, do you have a story you can share of one of those times where you came close or you slipped or said the wrong thing and, and raised some suspicion? Um, there weren't a lot. I was I had a pretty tight uh, package when I was with these guys. Um, I was very careful to, uh, well, I think it goes back to there's a, a very simple rule uh, of undercover is that you don't take your story you don't take what you say too far away from the truth. You take the truth, you take the true elements of your life, and you morph them a little bit, or you put a little spin on, so that you're really not telling a lie. You're just, you might be telling a white lie uh, at times. Mm-hmm. So I never got too far extended. My story stayed consistent throughout uh, who I was, what I was about, what my history was. Um, but sure, there were times, there were times, you know, um, when uh, you know I was called out, there was times when I was surrounded and called out. Uh, said, "Hey, you know, the word on the street is you might not be who you say you are." And then I referred back to historical events that I had uh, criminal interactions with suspects, and said, "I, I can't believe you're questioning me. Um, don't you remember when we did this? Don't you remember being here?" Don't you remember seeing me do this? Like, why are you asking me this question now? What, like, everybody chill out. Um, and I was able to, when those situations came, I was able to talk my way through them. I, I think another element of undercover work, actually a place work, is learning to be comfortable in uncomfortable situations. And that's, that's part of what we do for a living. Must have been an intense amount of stress on you, you know, dealing with balancing, trying to balance a family and and knowing you're going in and out of this world. And then it's, that that any moment that conversation right there could happen and you could be surrounded because uh, somebody got a s- sneaking suspicion or, you know, but to me, it's always it always kind of blew me away too that, you know, you you're you're a former football player for University of Arizona. Right. So and you were doing all of this in Arizona. So you weren't an exactly a, a completely strange face in the media. And well, probably not. Um, I think my, uh, my appearance changed, uh, from my undercover role to what it was when I was in college. Uh, I also found that the people that read the sports page or that go to sporting events, 
generally aren't the same people that I was working on. Fair enough, yeah. I think that um, at times in law enforcement, we give more credit to the um, criminal networking that's actually there. Um, I'm not sure they communicate as good or as well as they could, uh, thankfully for us. And, um, you know, there, there, there weren't a lot of instances over that time where someone said, I know you, I remember you from, you know, whatever that was, maybe 20 years previously. That didn't happen very often. Hmm. Interesting. You know, uh, we have two mutual friends, um, and, uh, one is Josh Montz, who you just spent some time with. And uh, when he was on the show, he had a, a line I've already quoted several times over about how he was at his um, he was at his most tactically proficient when he was at his most emotionally detached, you know, and that he could he functioned best when he was just kind of focused on the mission and zoned out on any emotional connection with his his family or anything going on at home. And it sounds like you have a similar experience. Uh, that you were at your best when you were disconnected from your family. Do you, do you understand what he says when he says when he? Do you mean, understand what he means when he says that? Absolutely. Josh is a friend. I think he's a remarkable man. I think he's uh, a true hero. I, like I don't look at myself um, as a hero, as a crusader, as anything more than a common man who had a, an uncommon job and did it the best he could. I, I think Josh does fit the definition of a hero. And uncommon man with uncommon value. Um, but yeah, um, I intentionally, which is I'm maybe sad to say, I intentionally distanced myself from my family. Um, I chose not to be uh, distracted by my obligations there. Um, it's 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 a shameful story to say that at a point in my life. I, I had abandoned my family. I, um, I betrayed my own family in exchange for what I thought was the right thing to do. I thought I was truly, truly making a difference in the world um, and probably overinflated what that difference was in my own brainwashing. And now, in hindsight, I realized that I was just one of the hundreds of thousands or millions of us out there who come to work with a badge and a gun and just do the best we can to try to impact whatever that situation or, or event or suspect is in front of us. Mm-hmm. So you retired after 27 years, you went through this lawsuit, but so tell us about what you're doing now. I think some of what you're doing now is really interesting. Well, I, um, you know, I've written a couple of books. Um, I do some public speaking. I do training for uh, law enforcement audiences. Um, I do some corporate keynote speaking. I try to translate my experiences into uh, a corporate world. Um, I coach high school football, uh, which I get a lot of uh, satisfaction out of. Uh, it's, you know, it's, you know, where you give and don't really expect anything in return. And when you do that, just historically through life, when you give something to someone without your handout, without expecting some kind of comeback to you, usually what you get back is times a million than what you would have ever asked for in the first place. That's what I get through coaching football, is that like those kids uh, give me so much more than I'm capable of giving to them. 
And what the, the law enforcement training you do, what, what kind of topics do you cover? Well, um, I speak at uh, law enforcement conferences all over the country, uh, big groups, small groups. Um, I talk about uh, a various number of topics, undercover work uh, in a bigger picture, a case study in uh, different cases I've worked. Um, I talk about the impact of the job we do on us as individuals, mentally and emotionally, on our families. Um, I think what probably surprises people is that people that don't know me expect me to take the stage and tell hero stories and try to sell the audience on what a sexy, glamorous uh, life I did. And, and I don't do that. I spend more time talking about my failures and my flaws and my mistakes and the things that I did wrong or had hoped to improve because I think those are the stronger messages. Um, I think any of us in this job can stand up and tell dynamic war stories that have dramatic events and conclusions to them. Mm -hmm. um, that's just part of the business. But I don't know that we get anything from those. I don't know that we uh, learn from those. I think we learn from other people's mistakes. And, and those lessons learned, if we can translate those in, into our profession, to where we're at in our career or in our life, they hold the biggest value. So that's what I try to do. So we have a lot of people who listen to the show who uh, either are aspiring into law enforcement, they're in criminology courses, or they have just started their careers. You know, you've got some hindsight and some perspective. What are the, What's some advice you would give to that group? Um, I think I said it earlier. Um, no one that I know ever took a badge and a gun for a living and expected to get rich. Um, nor should they expect to be thanked or appreciated. And there's a special type of personality, type of character out there that wants to do that job anyways. And they want to do it knowing that they're going to be criticized, knowing that they're going to be scrutinized. And they do it anyways because they have a uh, a greater sense of what their contribution to the world will be beyond themselves. They, they want to impact a greater good. And, and those are the people I admire and that I love that, that choose that profession, uh, knowing how hard it is. It's never been harder to be a cop than it is today. And there's still people that want to do it for all the right reasons. They want to stand in the path of predators. They want to stand up for people um, against violence. And uh, to do that, especially as a young person, man, I say, man, go do it. Thank you for doing it. Uh, continue the legacy. Um, learn from my mistakes. Learn from the mistakes other people have made in front of us, like I tried to learn from the people who came in front of me, and be better at it. Raise the bar. Be the best that there ever was. Be the best cop there ever was. Just along the way, don't forget to hug and kiss and love on all the people in your life that love you. Uh, because ultimately, when you come home at the end of the day, that's who's there waiting for you. I think that's fantastic advice for, for any of us. And it's a good reminder that we're, we're here for a reason and we're here for a purpose that's within ourselves. We're not here for the thank yous and the parades and uh, and, and that we're never, uh, you know, we're, we're a different breed, for sure. I, I think the people that uh, 
the young people that are, that are seeking jobs in law enforcement that want to be first responders, they have a unique character trait where they understand that um, the world is bigger than themselves. It's bigger than them as individuals. And they're selfless type people. Um, I, I tell kids I talk to all the time, you want to get rich? You want to make a billion dollars and go to Wall Street and have a helicopter and a yacht and houses and all that stuff that comes with it? Why not? Go do that. Go do that. When you get your helicopter, take me for a ride in it. I'm pulling for you. I'm not an envious person. Um, but no matter what it is you do, when your alarm clock goes off in the morning, be excited about putting your feet on the ground. Because if you don't love what you're doing, and I loved it, in spite of all the things that have happened to me, in spite of some of the battle damage and the injuries and the drama and the trauma, I loved it. I loved every day of it. And I, I, there is no amount of money that I would trade it for because you can't buy what I experienced. That is no, there's no absolutely truth in that statement. Jay, thanks for being on the show. Your new book, Catching Hell, uh, it's available on Amazon, uh, on, on Kindle, correct? There is a, uh, a Kindle ebook available on Amazon, and then the hard copy is um, available through the publisher, and you can get it. You can just go to my website, which is www.jdobbins.com, B-O-B-Y-N-S, and there's a purchase link right there. So if you're interested in reading it, um, thank you for that. And if you have feedback, feedback on it afterwards, whether you like it or don't like it, whether you like Jay Dobbins or don't like him, I'm open to all that, and there's a way to contact me. Fantastic, and we'll put uh, links to your website, to the book, all that in the show notes for this episode. So if someone's unable to remember that at the moment, they can always just go to our website, thesquadroom.net, and uh, your episode will be up there, and they can uh, find that there as well. Jay, thanks for telling your story. Thanks for uh, being such a you know a champion of the right of, of what's right, and uh, and and you know not uh, not backing down. I think your story is an important one. And um, it's just fun to talk to you because, again, that your, your first book, No Angel, was such a huge uh, motivator to me as a young, as a much younger cop. And uh, so it's a real treat to talk with you today. So thanks for being on the show. Very kind. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks for listening to this show and this episode with Jay Dobbins. If you like what you heard today, if you got something out of this conversation, please consider leaving a review on iTunes uh, and, of course, sharing this episode with some loved ones who uh, are partners or friends who need to hear something from this. Please tell them about the show. You can go to the squadroom.net and email this episode directly to someone uh, to keep up to date on the show. You can text the squadroom all one word to four, four, two, two, two to get signed up for our mailing list. And you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at the squadroom. And of course, join our Facebook group, uh, the squadroom podcast closed group. Our job's tough, tougher than anything. You can be put a few words here or an hour long conversation. So if you want to start one, you can reach me, uh, at Garrett at thesquadroom.net. Garrett's two R's, two T's. And lastly, I want to remind you that you can donate to the show via Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash the squadroom. Or uh, with over 180,000 titles in their inventory, you can go to audibletrial.com forward slash the squadroom. Get signed up for a free audiobook of your choice and free 30 days uh, subscription to Audible. And uh, you help support the show that way too. So audibletrial.com forward slash the squadroom if you're into audiobooks. Uh, and you can get a free audiobook out of that. And it's free, like I say, free audiobook, free month of uh, membership. And you help support the show. 
All right, until next time, take care of each other and stay safe.